This week, I enjoyed a riveting and conscious conversation with Dr. Judy Wileyman. In 2015, after leaving a 15 plus year career of being a science teacher and following her curiosity and concern, sparked by observing an abnormal rise in allergies and learning disorders and other symptoms in the children she was teaching, Dr. Judy completed her PhD entitled A Critical Analysis of the Australian Government's Rationale for its vaccine policy. What followed was nothing short of a drama out of Netflix. Intense media scrutiny, active steps to discredit her, lobbyist pressure to remove her PhD from the University of Wollongong's library and website, and much, much more. In this conversation, Dr. Judy explains vaccine theory, undone science, the lack of rigorous and legal accountability surrounding vaccines, as well as the numerous conflicts of interest that pervade the Australian scientific and government regulatory and decision-making bodies. What shines through for me are the major questions about just how much we, and particular, our key decision-makers in state and federal positions, lay our trust with scientists and science. Dr Judy is a regular mother and a regular person who was concerned for her children and the society we live in. The impact of all of this and upon her is laid bare within this conversation. What is interesting is the scale of the backlash that she endured just because she dared to question. For the listener, ultimately, this comes down to a question of sovereignty over your own body and that of your children. And just how much responsibility and ownership are you willing to take there? So enjoy, Dr. Judy. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today, my guest is Dr. Julie Wileyman. In 2015, Dr. Judy published her PhD at the University of Wollongong entitled A Critical Analysis of the Australian Government's Rationale for its Vaccination Programme. To date, because I checked this morning, that's had 27,289 mm -hmm. downloads. Mm -hmm. And I don't imagine that many PhDs get that many no, downloads, because no. as, as much as they're important... That's right, yeah. But yes. During that, you did an analysis, a uh, scientific, uh, scientific argument about what's going on with the vaccination. Um, part of that, I'm led to believe, indicated that not only is it not necessarily protecting us, but it's also causing potential illness and death. To date, there has been no scientific refuting of that. And it's also seen numerous attempts to have it removed mm -hmm. from download. Dr. Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> so let's kick off. Why? Vaccination, why is it? I thought we'd start by exchanging views at the start. Why is it so important in your view? So if we frame this conversation, why is it like the burning thing for Judy? Well, the investigation of the science became a burning thing uh, because I was a science teacher in the schools from the mid 80s to the early 2000s. Yes. And um, it was, um, around 1993 that I started having my own children and what we had noticed basically from 1990 onwards in the schools was just this significant increase in um, allergies, anaphylaxis, asthma, ADHD, speech delay, neurological disorders was all increasing through the 90s and particularly autism. 
Right. And um, as a science teacher, you know, it started to intrigue me. You know, all of a sudden we had these pictures of students posted up in the, the staff room saying they're anaphylactic. Yeah. And that had never been the case before. It was never really a thing when it we were kids. It was never a thing. And the peanut butter, you know, the yeah. allergies to peanut butter became, you know, it was quite sudden that. And then, then it just tenfold increase, a five to tenfold increase over the 90s. And that has continued for the last two decades as well. Yeah. So, you know, I was then um, alerted to the vaccination schedule when I had my own children and blown away by how many vaccines they were actually required to have within that first year of life. Mm. And with a little bit more investigation, um, the media was saying that this, that, um, some of these, this information about the links to the chronic illness, they were telling us it was junk science, the media report to say, oh no, no, that's junk science. And I thought, hang on a minute, that's not junk science. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, I, I went to some talks by people that were also concerned about it, and then I thought, right, well, let's let's investigate this properly. So I gave up teaching around 2004, yep, and went back to university and enrolled in the School of Public Health to do a Master of Science in Population Health, mm. just literally to test the waters. Is there a problem? Isn't there a problem? What What's the ingredients that are being mm. injected directly into the, the bloodstream of that's all a, children now? All children. That's a big step. Like even on a personal level, to go from right, I'm going to put behind my put behind me my teaching career mm. and go and investigate that. How did you break that to your husband? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess at that point I was actually feeling I wanted something new, something yeah. different, and I would have liked to, and I did actually lecture for a while at the universities in um, public health. Mm -hmm. So that was the step I was essentially taking in doing it. And, and I was actually just fascinated by the topic and, um, you know, trying to find out, well, am I doing the right things because I was vaccinating my children mm. at the time or should I not be vaccinating? And um, I thought this would solve all my problems. Yeah. <laughs> I would find so you've, that. <laughs> you've seen something that's not quite right on the front line yeah. of being with kids, yeah. lots of kids. Yeah. And now it's... Mm, so yeah, there was I'm a trend happening, and it's still happening to this day, in direct, um, direct dose response relationship to the vaccination program. Mm. And as it turns out, that is in fact a key factor. The neither, the neither the governments or the pharmaceutical companies have funded that causality study uh, using an inert placebo in the unvaccinated group. And we're going to get to that. Okay, um, and so that without that fundamental empirical evidence. Um, it, it's critical to um, the claim that vaccines are safe and effective. The, basically, the government's saying they're safe and effective, but having not done that critical evidence. And, and that's essentially what my PhD is. It exposes the undone science in government policy. Right. That's actually a term, a, a term undone. that's used in academic circles. Undone science. It's the critical science that is necessary to make policy decisions that hasn't ever been funded. And that was the outcome of my PhD. And so, you know, um, <clears throat> I started with the Master of Science and my main concern at that point was um, whooping cough vaccine. I just, I knew I'd seen a lot of literature saying um, about its link with brain damage through the 90s. And I wanted to know, and it was in the late 90s that they actually changed from using the whole cell pertussis whooping cough vaccine to an acellular vaccine saying that there were less reactions to this new vaccine than the old one, which was uh, proven to be linked to um, encephalopathy, brain damage, by a British study that 
went over 10 years. Um, so yes, they changed to that vaccine and um, yeah, no, I, I got my Master of Science with that major research project that got a high distinction. And when I asked the School of Public Health at University of Wollongong um, to continue with a PhD in that department, they wouldn't provide supervisors. So that was the School of Public Health um, in the Health Faculty of Health and they wouldn't provide supervisors in that school to, to um, continue my research with a PhD. They Alarm bells at that time? Well, or, yes, yes. Or because concern bells? I went and saw the head of the department and um, she said, no, we think that's better placed in science and technology studies, um, which is an analysis of the... Um, the history of the control of infectious diseases and the mm. ethics and politics surrounding it, which of course um, is, is very relevant to um, vaccination, oh, sorry, uh, the control of infectious diseases, um, because that's called social medicine. That, that we mm. didn't ever use drugs or vaccines to control these diseases. Yeah. They're a public, literally a public health issue that doesn't require, that didn't require um, vaccines to reduce the risk of these diseases. Uh, so they decide, but the science and technology studies um, was in the Faculty of Arts. So they were moving this project. So instead of being able to investigate it through the epidemiology of infectious diseases and how they were controlled, um, and um, you know the School of Public Health where it should have been done, they moved it to social sciences in the Faculty of Arts. And I had a great supervisor there, and it was very relevantly placed, but it was a strategy that removed credibility from the PhD, only in, terms, yeah, only in terms of the media being able to promote it as a, uh, oh, that, no, that's an arts degree. <laughs> it's in mm -hmm. the Faculty of Arts. Uh, and then, then they say, well, it's social sciences or humanities. And that, that's um, a strategy so that the public, because the public's being told, oh, no, they need to get it, this, um, their information from a medical doctor. So therefore, it's, it's easily dismissed in a lot of people's eyes based on the fact, oh, no, that's a social science degree or a humanities mm. degree. When in actual fact, the control of infectious diseases was literally controlled through changes to political and economic uh, stru structures in society and um, it, it wasn't medically based at all. The vaccines didn't control it, re didn't reduce the deaths and, and serious illness to these diseases. That was already done prior to most vaccines. So here's a question um, that I was really keen to ask right at the start of this before we go further into your PhD. What is the theory behind how vaccines work and does that in and of itself stand up? Right. Well, yeah, no, there's a, a couple we of can problems go, there. Because we can go all into, and we will do, into um, no jab, no play, and what Australian government's policy lines are, and this, that, and the other, and da-da-da-da-da. But if you dial it all the way back mm -hmm. to, you know, I remember having a handful of, handful of jabs at school, not very many, mainly the most memorable one for me was my TB jab around about the age of 12, because I was at a boys' boarding school and everyone went run around hitting each other on the job just because it was painful. Um, but what is the theory behind mm. giving vaccines and does that stand up in and of itself? Well, that's right. Um, the theory behind giving vaccines is that um, part of your, the defence, the immune defence mechanism is to raise the antibody titer in the blood. 
and they have found some association between a high antibody titer and protection to disease. However, um, it's not a, not a complete correlation. There are some people that have a low antibody titer and still pre protected from disease, and mm -hmm. vice versa. People can have a high antibody titer and still get the disease. What does the so, titer mean? Titer is it, it's a count of uh, the, um, the antibodies in your bloodstream, so it's just a, um, they're, they're an, amount, an amount. Kill stuff off. Sorry. So, okay. Antibodies, antibodies um, are produced to um, in in response to an antigen. Right. And so we're talking about um, the the antigens would be say the attenuated weakened virus yes. or, or killed. Right. Um, or bacteria, an attenuated yes. bacteria. So they're the agents, infectious agents. Got it. And so when we're exposed to them naturally, uh, we it's noticed that the immune system responds by. Um, producing antibodies in the bloodstream and, yep. and they're part of our immune response to uh, prevent disease or serious yep. disease. Um, however, it's, it's known that, as I said before, you can have a high antibody titer and still get the disease and you can have a low antibody titer and not get the disease. So it's not foolproof, that particular right. uh, measure. And the, the thing with vaccines is that they... That, um, they are not tested um, against the disease itself. The surrogate, they use a surrogate mm -hmm. of antibody titer to test the vaccines in the laboratories. So again, that's not empirical evidence. And it actually states on the vaccine package inserts, and I've got the quotes in my PhD, that the, the vaccines have made not, not been tested to prevent, say, influenza in the community. They're tested against antibody titer and, that, and it suggested that there is a model of antibody titer showing you what is a protective level. Right. But when I looked for that model, wasn't able to find one. And of course you couldn't have that model unless you have tested them to see what level is needed yep. by having two groups and seeing um, what level was needed to pr protect um, against the disease in a vaccinated and unvaccinated group. But the only data that is available is antibody titers, and of course that's a surrogate, which the they're real. saying, yeah, and not the real empirical evidence to see yeah. what, how many vaccinated people um, don't get the disease and how many unvaccinated don't get the disease. It, I felt I had to ask that question because mm. it's really important because, you know, obviously, you know, it might seem a very basic question to yourself, but for the everyday person who will be listening to this, which is why I wanted to do this podcast, you know, there's some really simple little stories that we've been told. That's it. Upon which bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger things start to be built upon. You know, we were told, I oh, will inject you with a very small amount of the, of the, the disease antigen, or the whatever disease. the problem yeah. is, mm. you know, and, and then you'll develop the antibodies and that's it. You'll, that's you'll be protected. Simple. Yeah. And on a level, why would you question that story? That's it's handed down from the great priests of, yeah. of science. It's a very good question. And, and that is what I found was that that is a surrogate that's being used, the antibody titer. So as you said, that it's simplified science. So there's actually two parts to the immune response. Mm. You, your Th1 and your Th2. Yeah. Well, the Th2 is your antibody response. And then, but there's a Th1, which is cell-mediated response. Yeah. And you need both of those responses to 
effectively pro protect against disease. Uh, but the vaccination only stimulates the Th2 response. It does half a job. That's right. And so it's not the same as the immunity that you might achieve after natural infection with the virus or bacteria. So those things I found were different to what the government was saying, and I've got that actually stated in um, Chapter 7 of my thesis. Um, and the other way in which it's different is that, of course, the bacterial um, vaccines have aluminium adjuvant in them. Hmm. And the aluminium, the adjuvant is used, um, it's stated to be used to um, enhance the antibody effect. Uh, but they actually say in the literature that uh, they don't know fully how that mechanism works. So they're not fully sure of, of, of what, how the um, aluminium adjuvant actually assists in that process. So Does it? Well, that's right. They do get an elevated antibody response if you put the aluminium in. But of course, the vaccines, a lot of the vaccines today have huge amounts of aluminium in them, which we know is linked to causing autoimmune diseases and hypersensitivity. Um, and these, the ingredients of vaccines aren't being presented to parents or even doctors in their education. Hmm. And so we do have to start weighing up, well, how many vaccines are we going to use that have so much aluminium in them? And recently, you know, 500 micrograms of aluminium is being used in, you know, HPV vaccines and um, meningococcal vaccines. Mm. And, um, you know, it's all accumulative. So, you know, if you have 10 vaccines and five of them have aluminium in them, you know, you're going to get that cumulative level of the aluminium. And of course, when it's injected, it does get to every, every cell and tissue in the body. Um, and it will interfere with body systems. Hmm. Hmm. So if we go back to your PhD, you got shuffled off to an arts department. That's right, the Faculty of Arts. <laughs> um, in social science. In social yeah. science. Yeah. Um, you proceeded to do the um, PhD. Now, yes. I, was, I was reading on your website, it, it wasn't that you went out to go and discredit things, you went to go and investigate. Absolutely, that... to see what role the vaccines did play in controlling the diseases. Right. Yeah. So what did you find towards that? That was interesting because it would be very easy to show the, in, the influence of um, vaccines in controlling these diseases. Mm. So for example, when there's an outbreak of a disease, the government needs to provide the statistics of how many cases of that disease were vaccinated and how many cases of those disease were unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, and that would tell us whether the majority of cases were in unvaccinated or vaccinated children or people. Mm. Right? And more significantly even, the hospitalised cases. They're the serious cases, the ones that actually go in, end up in hospital. Yeah. So even if you just monitored the vaccination status of the cases that end up in hospital and, and presented those statistics to the public when we have an outbreak of disease, that would help us know that, oh yes, the vaccine's effective and of course, you know, we should consider using it for this particular disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But throughout history, they've never used yeah. that So for 100% of people presented with, you know, very illness X, very how many people have been vaccinated for illness That's X, it. how many haven't? That's right. And um, there's been ways of manipulating that so that that figure doesn't get um, observed or presented. But, but in most cases, 
literally you'll see a media report and it just says, you know, measles outbreak and um, they tell you how many people have got measles. But even that in itself is too simplistic because after um, the public health infrastructure was put in place in the 1950s and 60s and good nutrition, so all of those things reduced the deaths to these diseases. So it was known that there's still cases of these diseases, but in a developed country, they were not serious. Mm. So, so publicising the fact that there's one or two or five or ten cases of measles in the population isn't telling us a thing. They're non-serious cases in the majority of cases. The person will get better at self-limiting. Uh, they get long-term immunity from natural infection. You don't get that from a vaccine, hence yeah. the boosters. Booster, booster, booster. Yes. And so, and, and what's happening now is, in fact, um, the health department has been told that a single case of measles must be treated as a public health emergency. And that's why you're getting these ridiculous headlines in the you know, um, mainstream media. Measles outbreak, you know, and you'll find that it's literally just one case. And yet they're saying, you know, three or four regions across Western Australia need to be careful where there's been an, you know, a case of measles in this area. You know, so it's being overblown and you're not getting that information you need to make a decision on whether you should or shouldn't get the vaccine. And what I found in my study was that um, highly vaccinated populations are getting outbreaks of measles and whooping cough and all the rest of it. Mm. So, in the, And we know now that the, um, the vaccination rates in these populations is 90 to 95%. It has been for a decade now. So the majority of those cases are going to be vaccinated cases, mm. but you're not being told how many were vaccinated, how many were unvaccinated, were they serious or were they non-serious? And um, in many cases in developed countries, you'll get an asymptomatic infection. And that's, um, you know, so no symptoms, it's sub called a subclinical infection. And they will be the majority of um, cases with childhood infectious diseases in a developed country um, and it gives long-term immunity and, and that's where the term herd immunity originally came from. Yes. Because the majority of exposure to measles, whooping cough, influenza even after 1950-60 were asymptomatic or mild cases in developed countries. That's yep. fine. That's why vaccination programs were always voluntary up to 2015. Quality of life was there, nutrition was there. Absolutely. All the stuff. And family sizes us. went down as well. Yeah. And so it meant, and, and when kids are exposed to these diseases over the age of six months, and particularly over one year, they're not serious. They're, it's kids under, mostly under six months that die from, say, whooping cough or, or measles or whatever, or have a complication. Mm. So it, it was the nutrition, the hygiene, the sanitation, the smaller family sizes after 1950 and all of those factors mm. those made a difference. Basic steps exactly. meant that we had that better immune system to start dealing exactly. with. Exactly. Because your, your immune system needs priming. In, that, that, that's how it works properly. What so do you mean by priming? Priming, actually being exposed naturally to these viruses. Right. But what's happening today, because the government's now mandated... seem to have gone past. Well, yes, because the, the government's mandating up to 16 vaccines are actually recommended on the schedule. And yeah. most of those are required to get into early childhood education and for childcare facilities now. Mm. So from naught to five years of age, and literally from day one of life, even in pregnancy now, 
the vaccines are being given. And so that, that's interfering with all of your body systems before they're developed. The prime time of development for your um, excretory system, your respiratory system, your digestive system, immune system, are between naught to three years of age. And we're bombarding that system with many chemicals in the vaccine carrier mm. on top of the antigens, the foreign protein that's mm -hmm. in there that is linked to causing autoimmune diseases. Um, and, and that bombardment is happening literally from day one of life with the, hep the hepatitis B vaccine. So, you know, it's no... Um, auto autoimmune diseases include rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, um, you know, chronic fatigue and cancers and all of these things are increasing in children. With the expansion of this program, we've seen a direct correlation. And when, when we put that to the government or to doctors, they're coming back... Is this and, at the end of your PhD? Uh, well, that was one of the findings in the PhD. And, and of course, a direct correlation uh, is, is one of the most important criteria to prove causality. Hmm. So you would expect good science would, would, would mean that that's one of the things that should be investigated before you claim that this is safe. But when we put that to the government, they're saying, oh, no, that's just a coincidence after, vac after a vaccine. And the doctors are saying the same thing. And um, they're not admitting that the mechanisms are there and the chemicals in the vaccines are there to cause these illnesses. They're ignoring it. So they're literally ignoring parents' evidence of what's happening to their children after vaccination. Can I ask you a question? When you were doing your PhD, or when you started off your PhD, did you, did you enter into it with a certain amount of, what shall I say, um, almost, if you look back at it now, naive exploration, let's go and see what's happened, this, that and the other. Or did you know that if I uncover anything, there's going to be, like this wall or blowback or anything oh, like that? completely naive. I thought this would be great. You know, I'd, I'd have the knowledge, I'd be able to debate it as you normally do in academic circles. Um, yeah, I was, get into a good, robust debate. That's right. So, and you know, I've done my work, I've done my research, <laughs> I've now got the three new letters after my name, well, PhD. This is it, you know. I'm allowed at the table. That's right. Time and, to talk. and with most. You'll notice that with most scientific areas, people with a PhD are asked for their opinions yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. they're presented to the public, so, but, but not mine. So um, <laughs> w tell me about the point in your own human journey with this where you suddenly went, hang on a minute, nobody actually wants to hear what I have yeah. to say. Well, that was the interesting thing, very interesting, because um, and this stuff was not hard to find, literally... It, just, it wasn't like you had to go rooting around in the back ends of no, a library to find no. a, a mystical Well, you know, yeah, there was a lot of like digging, but the books are there and open up a medical journal and, and the articles are there and they're jumping off the page, literally, and some amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually really easy to, to keep going and to complete the PhD because of what I was finding. And, and literally that's part of the problem public interest science is sitting on the shelves in, in libraries and things because the only research that's publicised now is industry-funded research. They're the ones promoting it. So if you do a, a topic where the science is, is in the best interests of the public 
and if it's not go and if there's a lot of vested interests in, that can that are making money and can do through government policy, as hard as that sounds to believe, um, that is actually what's happening. Um, I know people that did a PhD. I know a lady who did a PhD through the medical department, and her PhD was sitting there when I started. She finished in two thousand and three sitting on the shelves collecting dust, she came to the same conclusions. But unless you promote it yourself, which is what I've ended up doing, mm. it doesn't get promoted. And in fact, the media puts out false information about my PhD. It's all, there's a lot of lies and de defamation about me in the mainstream media and on Wikipedia. But if you don't have money, you can't fight that defamation. No. And, I didn't, and, and they know that I, I didn't have a voice. So to get back to your question, that realisation that all of a sudden I'm finding these things and nobody's going to hear about them because yeah. I, I, the media reaction was so obvious. And so mm. I started um, by writing letters to people like Professor Fiona Stanley. At this time I was lecturing at Murdoch University in environmental science, environmental health. And um, so I was interested in the studies that she was doing here with, in terms of she was actually investigating. They had a $10 million study, um, the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere, that was in investigating the, environment, the, the effects of environmental toxins on children's health. Because by this time, everybody was noticing all yeah. this chronic illness in children. So yeah. that was around 2008. So I was at Murdoch University and I started writing to her, but I made sure that any letter that I wrote, no matter who it was to, I started copying in all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, and people that I thought would be interested because I wasn't going to be the only one seeing this. I could see it wasn't going anywhere and I'd be finding it and there was nothing I could do with it. So I, yeah. I did. I started copying in my friends and um, they'd say, oh, Judy, that's a great letter. You know, I wonder what her reaction will be. Yep. <laughs> and then, you know, the next minute, you know, they either didn't answer yep. or, you know... Um, uh, she actually repli they, they replied to one of the questions I asked, in, um, and I said, you know, are you investigating vaccines in this study of the environmental um, factors that can affect children's health? And they said, no, no, we're not. In that would be unethical. It would be unethical to refuse a child a vaccine. But hang on a minute. It's unethical to be promoting... 12 vaccines in children if you have never investigated the long-term health effects of those vaccines on the children. And that's exactly where we're at. It's mm. literally where the vaccination program is an experiment on children because they have never done that science with, a, with an inert placebo. I was going to say, am I right in believing that if I, if I was you know, if I set up pharma company Brin and I wanted to put a medicine out there, like an actual tablet of some description, it would have to go through a very long trial. It would have to go and have the double blind, the, the gold standard of science and all of that. Yet vaccines get a free pass from that. That's right. That's correct. That's because they have, instead of calling it a drug, they've classified it as a biologic. Now what, this, does, what does that mean? Uh, it's, a, it's a substance that's, you, that's um, um, used in the blood, in the blood um, has, has an effect in the blood, but there's no, technically there's no difference between a drug 
and a biologic. I mean, a vaccine is a drug. You're injecting it into the body with mm. chemicals in it. It is a drug. <laughs> How did it end up being classified as? Uh, well, the CDC have classified it as America. a biologic. That's correct. And um, when I looked into the studies of the study designs that they were calling safety studies, they either use as an inert, so an inert placebo is the placebo you use in the unvaccinated group. Yeah, um, that, so that's in effect just injecting with saline. And that's right, them. a saline solution that should have no effect in your body, but yep. it's just the knowledge that, you know, you're taking something. Yeah. Okay, so, and what I found was the placebos they were using in safety studies were either a previously marketed vaccine so if you're if they're looking at the safety of an influenza vaccine they would use another influenza vaccine um, that had already been marketed as a placebo or they use the aluminium adjuvant that's in the vaccine by itself by itself but the aluminium adjuvant is the part of the vaccine that is linked to most of the autoimmune diseases and hypersensitivity and, and allergies that we're seeing so how do you so, get a free pass for that well, that is a good point because that is pseudoscience. It's, it, it's false science. It, it, it's, it's fraudulent, actually. Yeah. Um, and, but, but it's because there's no accountability. And what we, we've got now, the situation we've got, is that the most of the clinical studies on the safety and efficacy of vaccines are funded by the pharmaceutical companies. Mm. So when the government decides to recommend a vaccine, the advisory boards you would hope that those people had no financial ties to any of the, um, the pharmaceutical companies. Hmm. But what we found is that the majority of them are receiving honoraria, um, you know, which are um, payments from CSL, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, all the pharmaceutical companies. Um, they receive this funding to go to conferences. Um, the people on these boards are often not just on a government vaccine advisory board and advising the government, they're also on a, a vaccine manufacturer's board, um, you know, like CSL or GlaxoSmithKline. And I think the biggest conflict of interest that I uncovered in Australia was um, the chair of our main um, vaccine advisory board. It's called the Australian Technical Group on Immunisation, so ATAGI. Mm. And the chair of that board was Terry Nolan, Professor Terry Nolan. He became the chair in 2005 till December 2014, so a whole decade. Yep. I discovered that Terry Nolan had previous to that been working at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. He, he actually started up in 1990 the largest vaccine research and development program in Australia. It's called Virgo and it's with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. So for 15 years, he was doing that prior to 2005. He then moved on to the Vaccine Advisory Board for the Australian Government, where his position as chair required him to directly recommend vaccines to the health minister. So he, he's in effect telling the health minister what's him, what's Exactly out. what to put on the board, on, on the program, on the, on the vaccine program. Yeah. Um, so, and, and over that decade, you know, uh, it, the vaccine program pro you know, almost doubled. You know, we're up to about sixteen or seventeen vaccines. And um, but what he was—he also had another role. He 
he was the deputy chair of the National Health and Medical Research Council. And as deputy chair to that council, he was um, involved in deciding on the funding of particular research projects. So he was directing funding into particular uh, research that needed doing with regards to safety and efficacy of vaccines. But you can systematically defund an area of science. Hmm. And during that time, I mean, I asked, I requested a scholarship, a government scholarship for my independent investigation of the vaccination program. That would have been in 2007. Hmm. And so he was there as the chair, but um, I was refused a, a government um, scholarship. So, you know, any, any funding I had to fund myself. Um, and, but it's a very important position because, I mean, I found there's undone science in the, the actual um, schedule of vaccines. Mm. And when Terry Nolan finished, retired in 2014, he went back to his role as head of the research and development vaccine program at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, where he is, still is now today. Um, so, I mean, that's a, a conflict of interest that the public is entitled to know about. Mm. But, um, you know, parents, a lot of us were trying to get the government to, to publish the potential conflicts of interest of all of these people on advisory boards. And we were writing to them from at least 2011 onwards. And it wasn't until Terry Nolan retired in December 2014 that the government then published conflicts of interest in February 2015. That was the first time that the conflicts of interest had been put up there. Um, but even now, you know, the, there's a, the majority of people on these boards have conflicts of interest and they move between vaccine advisory boards for companies across to the government and then back again to their previous roles. So it's, it's sort of a revolving door. And I know that's the case in a number of government departments now. So what you're saying is, Scientists will work with a private companies, entity, the manufacturers, vaccine manufacturers. The yeah. Then they'll be found on a board that would be suggesting them on the roster of things that we should be injected with, and then later in their career they'll possibly go back. That's right. That's right. And and I mean it's happening in the U.S. In the, with I, I documented all of the CDC and FDA conflicts of interest. It's it's the same across the board, hmm. uh, and it's found that the majority of people on government vaccine advisory boards have a, have at least a financial conflict of interest. That is, they're receiving money from pharmaceutical companies while they're on these boards uh, recommending vaccines to the government, uh, or and or they are moving between you know, being the head of the Vaccine and Research Development Department at, uh, you know, a private institute like the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, um, you know, to being on the government board and then they'll move back to their previous job. And, and, and that's a powerful role he had because he was recommending directly what vaccines should be on the government schedule um, to the health minister. Mm. Uh, he was control involved in con um, influencing where the funding should be spent as his role in deputy chair of the National Health and Medical Research Council. And, um, you know, and he also was influential in the directives to doctors on how to administer vaccines through the Australian Immunisation Handbook. Those sorts of jobs. Um, Just laying it out. That's right, that's right. Um, and, you know, I think on top of that, just knowing that 
um, the Murdoch media. So when you look at the mainstream media in Australia, uh, Murdoch News Corp now owns about 80% of Australia's media. And this was the case in 2015. When, you know, the um, government was promoting this no jab, no pay policy, whereby thousands of dollars, parents were due to lose between ten dollars and $15,000 if they didn't use all 12 vaccines. But that's not how it was presented in the media. To anybody who didn't know the schedule of vaccines, no jab, no pay was presented as, oh, these people won't use, uh, are unvaccinated. And people would just assume, oh, well, that's one or two vaccines and, and they're yeah, unvaccinated. Yeah. One jab. That's right. But in actual fact, where we were talking 12 to 16 vaccines, you know, somebody who's unvaccinated means that they haven't had minimum 12 vaccines. And of course, the most adults in the population had, haven't had 12 vaccines. But that piece of information was never promoted in the mainstream media while that um, policy was being pushed through the parliament. And of all of our submissions, there were thousands of submissions against the policy to the Senate inquiry, all ignored, all ignored. And in fact, the biggest um, um, lack of accountability we put in a freedom of information request for the science that the chief medical officer used to approve the no jab, no pay in November 2015. It was sent to the um, Prime Minister and Cabinet's office and they refused under the Freedom of Information Act to provide to the public what science was used to approve mandatory, mandating 12 vaccines plus for naught to five-year-olds to go to childcare centres, to get an early childhood education, and for parents who need the welfare benefit. They have no choice in this. You know, you, their livelihood depends on the welfare benefits from the government. And so, but the public wasn't allowed to see what science had been used to mandate these vaccines in the community. Uh, and that's a critical factor, you know. And it's pretty scary. It's scary. And, and so that's where we're at today. We still have not got... The, the government hasn't justified this policy with science. Mm. And I would like to actually point out also in 2015, because at this time we were very vocal, we were having... Who's we? Um, the parents. You know, I had been putting out my newsletters, you see. My newsletters grew. Yeah. Yeah. So and how people, many are on your mailing list now? Oh, thousands, and it oh, goes yeah. globally. Yeah. And, and every week people are signing up to my newsletter. Mm. But so 2015, there were some parents, because I had been living in Sydney at the time, and so they were very familiar with my work. And one of them was a media and communication student at the University of Technology in Sydney, and she had three children. She, she wanted to know, she you know, intuitively was concerned about vaccines and she wanted to get the de have a debate. <laughs> so she thought, all right, well, um, for her project, she would organise a Q&A at the University of Technology in Sydney, and we would have a panel. We would have um, the people like myself, academics and doctors. A or nice, open, reasoned debate. discussion. Exactly. And so, you know, we, the ones questioning freedom of speech. <laughs> freedom of speech. I thought. Yeah. And so she went and invited over 45 public health authorities, doctors. At the time, Susan Lay was the Minister for Health. Mm -hmm. She was invited. We had Scott Morrison was the Minister for Social Services at the time, and he was invited. 
And then actually in the same year, um, Christian Porter became the Minister for Social Services just after the policy was tabled in Parliament. So he was invited. And then doctors, literally over 45 people. And not a single one of them would come to an open forum, a Q&A, at the University of Technology and defend the government's no jab, no pay that they were about to push through. This was prior to um, approving that policy in Parliament. It was October 2015 and the policy was approved in November 2015. Mm -hmm. And not a single one. And we even had the head of the NCRS, Peter McIntyre, he was invited. Peter McIntyre and Robert Bowie, uh, they declined. And, and, and Peter McIntyre has been at the head of the NCIS for over 22 years. So he was there at the beginning when the NCRS, that's the National Centre for Immunisation Research Surveillance. So it's that body that is responsible for providing the science, the, the research behind the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Mm. So he should have been, been, you know, very willing to come and present yeah. the science at this open Q&A. None of them would come. So we, we still did the Q&A. See, see, okay, so mm. whilst not in the same area as yourself, mm. I, have two, I have two degrees in, 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 in science, right? Um, a bachelor's and a master's. Mm -hmm. And science in theory should be the most straightforward thing to debate because you're debating straightforward facts. It's well, not even right. bloody opinion. It's not. And, and also science, to stand up to scrutiny, science needs to stand up to scrutiny to be accepted as fact. Yes. And therefore, if the government's putting forward mandatory medication for healthy people, the thought that they weren't even required, they, they, nobody made them accountable. We, we actually did the Q&A and I ended up doing both sides of it. We had on the panel, we also had a naturopath who came and presented information as well. Uh, but the doctors wouldn't come and nor would the politicians or the heads of these did you get any off-record responses or just We did, we did. Up? It was really interesting. And, and, and we've got the video. It was videoed. It's up online on my website. And so we have listed at the beginning all of these officials that declined to um, hmm. come and be accountable for the policy and defend it in a public forum. And what, when, when I did the talk, I actually looked at the Academy of Science to get the information that they were using to present, to to put forward this policy, and I also used um, the information on the government website. Mm. So I put their case forward, and then I put our, our case forward, and it's in the video. Um, and we did get a response from the, uh, now it would have been the social services department, and because um, they said, look, if you, if, we, if you give us your questions, we'll answer your questions. So we sent them the questions we had. And they sent it back, said, oh, no, no, this is, that's for the health department, send them to the health department. <laughs> and so we sent them to the health department. And they said, no, 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 it, it, this, this policy is going through social sciences. It's the social sciences department that needs to answer those. Well, we've got, we've got those responses up in the video. Mm. So this is part of the problem. Politicians are not being accountable for the policy decisions they're making. And, and we don't have a voice. Literally, the public's voice on this issue has been removed. So when we have a protest, the media doesn't turn up. And if the media doesn't turn up, then you literally, you might as well not protest because nobody knows about it. Mm. We, we film it ourselves and we put it up on alternative media. 
Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people, the, the intimidation and psychological strategies of the public being told, oh, no, no, you must get this information from medical doctors. You know, that a, a lot of people just put their trust in the doctors and the governments and that's it, you know, and, and particularly with the bullying that we get and, and the labels, the stigma of this anti-vaxxer, you know, uh, that's literally a... Conspiracy theorist. Exactly. Both of those labels. And they're pushed to the hilt. And so nobody wants to be, you know, on the fringe of society that, you know, the, the, the public's told, oh, no, they're, you know, alternative people. Well, you can't get more mainstream than a science teacher who's gone through the universities and, and all I was yeah. out for is debate and scrutiny of the science. Yeah, um, and so you don't, you're not Judy. You're not exactly some <laughs> dreadlock hippie. hippie. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> not that they have any less of opinion. No, no. In fact, probably they're more on the ball than in terms of health issues. So what What is really alarming to me, listening to you, is that if I'm right, we have scientists that have conflicts of interest mm. who are glossing over or, or not necessarily completing the rigorous investigation, scientific rigor. 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 That's what my thesis showed. So the, un, the rigor's not The there. undone science or That's the it. lack of That's science. it. However, because they are scientists and senior scientists that hold positions of responsibility, and, and let's not forget all that that entails... Yeah. Because that has a, that has a whole schema of beliefs in authority and everything around it. They that that body or person is then in a position to then go and advise a government official mm. who, by and large, will not be a scientist. That's so, it. That's it. So, by and large, will be. Um, None of them have, have qualifications no, in either yeah. health or so science have or, or medicine. No greater no. insight no. Or, or let alone space and capacity to go and investigate for self. Yeah. Right. They will be provided with a um, scientific like, if you don't do this, then this will happen. Mm-hmm. And this will happen because it's medical will be scary sounding. That's it. Because you can bamboozle it's, people with the science. Yeah, that's what's happening. Because it's scary, the, the potential outcome. Yeah, yeah. I, as a politician, within the framework of the short-term democracy that we have, four to five years in your term, depending that's on where it. you're at, yeah. will think, well, I don't, want it. I don't want that on my watch. No, that's right. Too because it's not good for votes, it's not good for the party, it's not good for this, da 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 yeah, we better do something, let's go, let's do it, da 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 And then we come up with nice little slogans, no jab, no play. That's it. Way, That's away, it. way. Um, you then have, if you can hear me out for a second, you would then have some sort of media influence there, how the two come together behind closed doors, we don't know. But the media will then provide things, you know, A, you're a crackpot conspiracy theorist, anti-vaxxer with weak science. It's probably some of the stuff you've had and tried to have your PhD taken down. And then it's like, you know, well, the sensible, the social responsible thing to do is get your kids vaccinated. The impact of social responsibility then translates in, into the herd, right? And then we start to see something called social shaming and, and fear and things like that. Now, the reason why I'm so concerned about that is you just spelled it out with vaccinations, right? 
But that turn of events has happened in the last three to four months with... Oh, yes. Yeah, big time with the COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The story seems yeah. to change all the time. But it doesn't matter about the story now because now we're in lockdown. Now we're making these decisions. Mm. The, the, the modelling upon, you know, the Imperial College modelling upon which the original alarm bell was rattled has... Well, it was based on uh, false assumptions. Indeed. And, and I couldn't and go so, into that. But... And so this is happening. Yes, it is. Simplified is science is being used. Simplified science. And, and, and don't get me wrong, you know, we do have to simplify it to a degree so everybody gets it. But you've got to have the facts out there. They've reversed the facts. They've mm. reversed the facts so that they're saying vaccines do all those things when in fact it was natural infection that did all of that. And the public health infrastructure meant that the risk from the infectious diseases was reduced so that when you did get a case of that disease, it was less virulent, you mm. see. And that's where, I will make this point, the mere idea of a global pandemic based on a mathematical formula, that's flawed, completely fraudulent. You cannot predict a global pandemic because of all the different environmental um, host characteristics in every different country, mm -hmm. even quality of healthcare. And what they've done is... Help. Yeah, well, what they, we were talking about earlier on with standard of life and exactly. nutrition and sunlight and exercise. Yeah, you, Australia doesn't base its public health policies about infectious diseases on, say, an African country because the environment's quite different. The, the, the genetic population's quite different. The host characteristics, the lifestyles. So that's where people should wake up because this idea that you can use a mathematical formula to predict a pandemic, a global mm. pandemic, and they were wildly exaggerating the deaths from this model. And the model was designed by the Gavi Alliance um, with the CDC. The and, what and alliance? The, well, it's the Gavi Alliance. It's the Global Alliance for Vaccine Initiatives, funded by Bill Gates. And Bill Gates, so that alliance is the alliance that designs the international health regulations. So all the, this lockdown and all of these initiatives were designed by a Bill Gates-funded alliance um, <clears throat> and they designed the mathematical formula that predicts a global pandemic which of course you can't have after 1960 anyway in a developed country we're not going to get a pandemic because of our improved health and quality of health care viruses don't act like that um, so um, and then they presented this they present these international health regulations through the world health organization which, of course, the World Health Organization has this charter for presenting objective, objective science. But the body that's actually designing the policies for the World Health Organization is the Gavi Alliance. That includes the Federation of Pharmaceutical Companies. It includes the biotechnology companies. Um, it includes the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and many, many corporations and private public companies, partnerships, that all benefit if we have a global pandemic and a vaccine is used. That's like the foxes designing exactly. the Exactly, it is, all the way through the whole system. So in fact, this whole uh, scenario could be changed even at a government level through political ch changes to the political system. Because it's- What would they look like? Well, you see, money is power and what the, the, what's happened is that through donations and lobbying by the powerful industry lobby groups, mm. and that's where the smearing of people like myself has come in. That's what, you know, 
um, was so distressing when I first started debating. There's hundreds of shills, paid farmer representatives, and they, they operate through the Australian Skeptics Group. And they've got websites everywhere and they've infiltrated all media organisations in Australia. And, and they have no health qualifications often, but they're allowed to say whatever they like about me and my qualifications. And there was a whole lot of lies and misinterpretations of what I was saying and really um, emotional arguments that were very, things I wasn't even saying. And it all suddenly appeared all over the internet and on Wikipedia. Which, of course, again, is controlled. Oh, if it's Wikipedia, then Oh, then that's it. That's it. You know, apparently you can change it yourself, but guess what? You can't. With a scientific topic like this that's very political, with vested interests in it, I can't change that information. So it's called the, the Skeptics are a global organisation as well as a national. You've got mm. the UK Skeptics. They work in the pubs. Uh, they, they have pub meetings in the pubs, and we've got the Australian Skeptics. And I investigated and they came from the Committee of Skeptical Inquiry in the US, that was the original sort of body, and they're a body that um, promotes corporate interests in government policies by claiming that they're um, debunking pseudoscience, <laughs> when in fact they're not a scientific group. They use industry-funded scientists to promote their message to their lay people, and then they pay people to promote their messages through the mainstream media even universities, you know, all that pharmaceutical funding. See, even, you know, in universities now, most of the research is funded by the pharmaceutical companies. And so, in fact, even their complaint system was allowed to be misused by these organised lobby groups. Vexatious complaints were put in and I constantly had to address them to finish my PhD. And I would be smeared in the media with lies before an investigation was finished. And then when the investigation was finished and found to be completely unwarranted, the media never corrected the academic record for the public. And, you know, this was um, really distressing things like academic misconduct was accused. And um, th they were allowed to make that claim eight years after I had published my, I had been awarded my Master of Science, you know, because they wanted to discredit my whooping cough research. So eight years after I had actually got my degree and published that piece of research, they allowed the leader of one of these industry lobby groups to make a complaint of misconduct about that research. And that, you know, I had to go through a whole investigation only to find it was completely, they admitted it was completely unwarranted. They gave me an apology. They gave me financial compensation, but the stress and the humiliation um, in the media, the defamation, which is still there, they, the media wouldn't correct the academic record and, and, and name the person who, the complainant, who was Dr John Cunningham, who is the leader of the Stop the Australian Vaccination Network, which is an industry-funded uh, lobby group promoting their message. And so they're literally getting away with smearing people's reputations without any consequences. The, the politicians are not being accountable for the science that they're using you know, we, we tried to make them accountable. So all that was left to me was my website and this newsletter, which, and that's why my PhD is being downloaded 27,000 times, because every time I put it out, I make sure I have a link to my PhD and people okay. are curious, people are interested. Yep. Yeah. Do you um, link up with any other 
people in this global arena? Absolutely. I mean, we're all there's a huge network of people, and we must be pretty well at the critical mass yeah. for people realizing that. Um, the, was it another Judy Mikovic? Yeah, Judy Mikovic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, I've met, and, and um, also Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. And I might point out that these doctors from the US, so Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, Andrew Wakefield, um, they have all been, and, and by the way, David Icke, who isn't <coughs> a, <coughs> a medical doctor or anything, but he is he, freedom of speech. All of those people have been prevented, hindered from coming to Australia and getting visas to speak in Australia. Yep. On this topic, literally. So censorship has happened to a huge we degree. We are cruising around in Australia. It's, it's pretty unaware of absolutely. a lot of this stuff. It's quite dark for me because... I was going to say, how has this changed your view oh, of the world? Very, very... Um, distressing actually because you've, I've got the two two worlds happening and I think I was first two worlds being being the undercover um, control of the policies and the lack of a public voice mm. the public's interest in vaccination policies has been completely removed mm. we've now tried we, we had a, um, a, a protest outside Parliament House in, in Canberra last year it was amazing you know and they've hidden the opposition to this policy so well. I mean, academics and professionals won't speak up because they've seen what's happened to me. Yeah. And it was only... She's got arrows in her back. I'm not following her. Oh, that's though. right. So there's all these professionals contacting me saying, Judy, great work, keep it up. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to join me on the path? Yeah. No. 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 So I can't do talks with prominent people. They're, they're all under the surface. And um, look, there's been some interesting times. Um, the first one was here in Perth in 2010. Um, when, of course, the Australia Vaccination Network run by Meryl Dory, she's actually been presenting this stuff for nearly 30 years now. And, and with my research, I teamed up with her to give a talk here in Perth. Well, mm. that was my first real indication of what was going to happen when I started to speak, when we got traction on this topic, because clearly we had the academic research now to go with the parents that were mm. concerned. And we had a big platform where the West Australian presented this as... Um, anti-vaxxers misusing the state library <laughs> for their talk and um, you know, huge headline and I, I quote the shadow minister for arts in 2010 stated this is equivalent to um, bikey gangs and the Ku Klux Klan presenting their opinions now we were but mostly parents mm. that's I, good, that's I was good. an academic lecturer at the university some good solid freedom of speech and that's the, that's the media's reaction, the West Australian's reaction. That was my first real indication of the fact that anti-vaxxer was going to be the title of everything that we put out, even though we're choice in all medications. Mm. And fortunately, it backfired. People in Perth thought, what? What's going on? You know, and we literally, we sold out the State Library twice. So over 200 people, we had to put the event on twice. So that sort of um, reaction actually backfired on them and and but but it was interesting as a parent to suddenly find we we were told we had to put extra security guards and police on around the state library when we gave our talk in 2010 and i'm thinking hang on i'm a parent i'm a lecturer at the university yeah. what's going on <laughs> and that's literally you're, been one the, you're one of the most dangerous people going apparently apparently and i think the most rewarding thing after that was um after we'd finished our talks the security guards would come across and they'd pick their pamphlets up as they walked out the door. 
and we had the... Because they'll all be parents. Well, this is it. And that's where, in the end, the truth will have to come out. But um, even the manager of the library came up at the end. She said, you'll be very welcome to, to put your talks on any time you, you wish, you know. Um, but, of course, again, in 2017, I had another situation in Sydney, a similar sort of thing. The, the Lord Mayor of Sydney, when she heard that... Oh, oh, we, we had been a bit cheeky. We had publicised our event, which wasn't at a council venue, but we publicised it on the, the City of Sydney um, website. <laughs> so, which, of course, when, when, you know, the... Um, well, it would have been the Skeptics organisation, they you know, they alerted the mayor, Maris Clovermore, and of course there was this big article in the Sydney Morning Herald calling me an anti-vaxxer and with my picture on the paper and saying that this um, information shouldn't be presented in council venues. And, you know, they gave the impression that the um, talk was actually being cancelled, um, when in fact it wasn't. And again, you know, we were sold out for that night, that night and people just signed up rapidly to my newsletter and I got lots of subscribers. But, um, you know, people without qualifications jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, these anti-vaxxers, they shouldn't be allowed to talk in council venues when they're talking about, you know, academic research from the university and they have no idea that they're... To me, it goes further. We're mm. talking about um, thing substances that we are, and we'll come to this in a minute, substances that we are putting, potentially putting into mm. our own body mm. as adults, let alone as parents, custodians for mm. our children. That's it, that's it. You know. And so therefore, there's, it comes down to a degree of sovereignty over your own Absolutely. body. And that's the fundamental issue, and you see that's... And that's why I wanted to key. talk to you That today. is key, that's key. Because that's the bit mm. I don't think people get. No. What we're talking about is as soon as the government decide that you or, or your child has to have, so you as the parent, guess what? You've just been taken out of your parent's life, for uh, your, your child's life for a minute. Yeah. And now the government has taken over sovereign decisions yeah. over the body and yeah. well-being of your child. Now, we could go to the other end of the spectrum and look at... Um, mental and emotional problems, suicide rates and stuff like that. And, and that would suggest that the government don't necessarily have a great track record in, in making decisions on our sovereign no, behalf, no, right? No. Because where's the policy decisions that are helping to reduce that? They're not present. Yeah. So therefore, why are we just handing over sovereign responsibility <clears throat> to, to politicians and government yeah. who are being who are being um, led down the alley or mm. informed by scientists. Well, that's really why I wanted to come and talk to you That's the mind-blowing bit that people find hard to see how we've arrived at this position. I must say, you know, even in my own mind, my, you know, it's like, my God, how did they get away with that? But, but what they yeah. do, it, it, it's, it's the indoctrination. Makes you want to swear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's the indoctrination, it's the complete framing of this issue, but, but with the backing of the education system, you see. Yeah. So from kindergarten to uh, university now, you will be told that the, that the young people are all being told. So anybody, you know, up to 30 years of age <clears throat> will believe that um, vaccines control these diseases, that yep. they're essential for public health, and that they don't cause autism. That's all being told in the curriculum. 
um, and that we need them with a 95% uptake rate to prevent these diseases. Mm. So indoctrination is part of it. And of course, the medical um, education system is also, it, it's funded by pharmaceutical companies. That's in my PhD. And that's global now. There's, and so what's happening is doctors are getting selective information. Um, and, and it's all, they're being funded with pharmaceutically funded science and told what to, to think about vaccines. And they're not getting the historical control of infectious diseases. If you ask a doctor, they, they have very little knowledge of infectious disease control or even vaccines. You ask a doctor, what's the ingredients of a vaccine? Parents are blown away when they find out, oh, the, the doctor will say, oh, you know, in fact, a pharmacist said to me, oh, there's um, the antigen, the weakened bacteria and a saline solution. And I looked at him, this was a pharmacist, telling, and I had asked him what was in the influenza vaccine. And there's six or seven chemicals in every vaccine. There's no saline solution, <laughs> you know. And so their knowledge, they're, they're not being educated with the ingredients. So that doesn't get doctors to think. And they don't have time to do their own research largely. Plus, um, pr medical practitioners um, also get bonuses for going to conferences where they, again, get selective information. And in fact, if they see stuff that's outside their education, and they were to present it to a patient, they're told in their medical regulations that they must present that in their, as their personal opinion. If they've seen the risks of vaccines and it's not something that's been presented to them, endorsed by the Medical Board of Australia, they must present it as their personal opinion. So of course that takes away the, the full credibility of what they're saying. But then what also can happen is that... Is that an insurance thing as well? Yes, well, well, actually, their registration to practice. So what also will happen is if someone finds out that they've been saying that to a patient, then they can be reported now to the Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Board. And the regulatory board might consider that anti-vaccination material. And that's all you need to get a doctor or a nurse deregistered. It just has to be what, the, what APRA decides is anti-vaccination material. And that doctor or nurse or allied health professional will be deregistered. And they're told they're not allowed to put any stuff on social media that is anti-vaccination. So it's that definition of anti-vaccination. And if you dig a bit deeper into that, well, anti-vaccination, what? The risks of vaccines. <laughs> So they're dismissing the risks of vaccines as being anti-vaccination. Or vaccine the, injury. Vaccine injury. Like in Australia, we've got health ministers that literally say vaccines do not have side effects. And it, that's disgraceful. And that was the Victorian health minister, Gillian Hennessy. She said that. And, we, you know, um, again, Greg Hunt or any of... Roger Cook. Uh, Roger Cook. We, we, we put up a great billboard. I think that was 2018, huge, absolutely huge. Do you know what is in a vaccine? <laughs> so perfect question. Yeah. Roger Cook, as the Minister for Health in WA said, that is a risk to public health. We must legislate to prevent people, uh, you know, asking these questions, putting this up. That's a quote from Roger Cook. Literally, we must legislate to prevent this sort of questioning of vaccines. You know, we're not allowed to put this information up. And I mean, the opposite is true. It's literally George Orwell. Hmm. You cannot have health if you do not ask. And that's what I say to parents. Say. It's your responsibility as a parent to find out what you're injecting directly into the bloodstream of your infant. And even if the chemicals make no sense to you, 
um, you know, that is your responsibility as a parent and, mm. and to ask the doctor, you know, what um, um, is in a vaccine and, and to see what they know. Um, but, but the idea that you're socially irresponsible if you don't vaccinate, you know, that is completely bogus. It, the, it's the parent's responsibility to find out what they're actually injecting into a newborn infant. And I promise you, if you saw the list of ingredients, most people would just simply say, you, you must be ridiculous. I wouldn't put that in my newborn infant. We're getting infant. more and more choosy about the stuff we eat. Oh, absolutely. But, but no, it's a risk to public health if you put up a question, do you know what's in a vaccine? But you could ask, what you know, do you know what's in your food? No, that's right. And it's critical information. Mm. And as I said, like with the ingestion of food, you've got your first line of defence, which keeps out a lot of the chemicals. Yeah, but you, this... With an injection, it's straight it's in, in, and they've got access to every, every organ of the body, including the brain, because your blood-brain barrier doesn't filter out that sort of stuff until six months. But this is going in and... Is this... Um, listening to the whole chain of things, mm. is this um, the... Is this capitalism gone mad and its its um, impact on, you know, its infiltration in, into democracy, media, education, health, you know? It, it's the neoliberalist agenda. Yes, it's the extreme Everything ends. you've said, yes, you yes. know, it's all money, money, money That's impacts, it. money impacts. That's it. All the way through. Is it? Yeah. Is it capitalism it, just it gone is. mental? Essentially what happened was in 1985... Um, the capitalist economic model of health was adopted fully and that's it's based on the neoliberalist agenda and it was in 1995 with Reagan that the uh, pharmaceutical companies are all indemnity they were, they're indemnified for any liability to injury from vaccines mm. and it was Ronald Reagan that pushed that through about 1986 and they wonder why well well the the pharmaceutical companies were saying <laughs> that, that it was too expensive to make vaccines because they were having to pay out all this compensation for injuries. So they would have to stop making vaccines. Oh. Yeah, so, so regardless of the fact that the vaccines didn't control the diseases, Ronald Reagan pushed through that, um, that um, legislation that removed all liability from vaccine manufacturers. Mm. And you see, the fact that most vaccines are licensed in the US yep. means that vaccine manufacturers don't have any liability because... So they're in effect sold out of that, so all the liability well, goes back to Well, that's to the right. US Australia the then the gets the vaccine from the US under a different name. So mm -hmm. it's approved in Australia under a different name to all the other countries where they get the same vaccine. Mm -hmm. And um, there's no... The vaccine manufacturers don't have any liability because it was licensed in the US. And, and, and no other clinical trials are done in the Australian population before it's used. But it has, you know, it'll have a different name in Australia to what it has in other countries. Yeah. What's it going to take for the public mm. to wake up to what's going on here? Because if it's happening in vaccines, it could easily have happened with the decisions around coronavirus. It could easily have been happening with so many other things, the quality of our water and, and other things. What That's right. does it, you know, food? And the standards of food, the, you know, what put in the water. I can think of a number of things where this could be yes, playing out. Yeah. And, and if, if the if the underlying pattern of behaviours that you know that I talk, 
spoke about about 10 minutes ago is going on here there's no reason to suggest it's not going on elsewhere well this is it it is it's happening in what other does areas. it take in your mind yes yep for everyone to pardon my friend see this is wait the, the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> this is right um and you see without a mainstream media prepared to um, put forward the public interest in vaccination policies. We're literally being censored by the mainstream media mm. and, and the lies and defamation of anybody who speaks up. Mm -hmm. So, so we've got we've, we're, what we need is a grassroots movement, knowing that we don't have a mainstream media to help us get there. And the yep. framing, the, the media's framing of this issue is in line with the education system. So they're in sync with, mm -hmm. that's why it's been so difficult because, and that they have achieved so much. Um, and with the political system that we have, you see, the, pub, um, the donations and lobbying system, whereby um, you don't have to declare a, a donation um, until it's above $13,000. Um, and that's not done in a timely manner. And also you can put in many several small donations under 13,000 and that's mm. hidden for a long time before it's, the public knows. Well, 200 donations of 10,000 suddenly becomes that's $2 right. million. That's exactly. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. And you see our politicians are being bought by the donations and lobbying system. We, we know now that um, politicians... Bought, if, strongly influenced, all the same thing. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so if we change the, you need to change, make the, the politicians accountable. We, we need to um, change the donation and lobbying system. We need to um, get back our media. You see, once you don't have an independent media, and we don't, or diversity of ownership, we've lost that as well. 80% owned by Murdoch, and Murdoch uh, is one of the, at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, which he started up with a... Um, you know, they're making, they're the largest developer of vaccines. So you see the framing, that's how the framing of this mm. issue to the public is vaccines have been put up there as being so beneficial to mankind and it's put through the education system mm -hmm. and the media. So there's your indoctrination. It's literally yep. brainwashing. Um, I went to the, um, the Human Rights Commission's uh, public conversation on human rights put on last year in October. And I made a point of seeing Rosalind Croucher, the president of the, yeah, of the Human Rights Commission. And, um, you know, asked her, why is it that medical freedom in Australia isn't being discussed in, in her conversation, in the Human Rights Commission's conversation on, on human rights? Our most fundamental human right is, is medical freedom, control mm. of our own bodies. Sovereignty of our own bodies. Absolutely. Yeah. Once you've lost the right to choose what you inject into your own body, Hmm. There is no freedom. The government can choose whatever they want to inject in there, and, and, and they already are, you know, with our children. We've given our hmm. children over. Literally, parents didn't fight. Um, hmm. no, job, no pay and play is in because money, that's their, you know, they were bribed. So the bribery on top of the indoctrination is what's happening. And, and I, I, Rosalind Croucher was very enlightening in her response to how this is happening. Because, of course, I, I discussed it as medical freedom, as fully informed consent to all medical interventions. And then I brought in vaccines, also with vaccines. I mean, in the Australian Immunisation Handbook, vaccines must be given without um, manipulation or pressure or coercion. Mm. And they must be from in fully informed consent. That's how it's presented. Yep. But as soon as the vaccine word was um, brought up, 
Oh, I'm pro-vaccine, you know, I'm pro-vaccine and we couldn't have the conversation. Now, where's the Nuremberg Code here? You know, um, the fully informed consent to all medications. This isn't a debate about pro or anti this medical procedure. This is a debate, a debate about the right to be fully informed about this medical procedure. None of us have started from an anti-vaccination position as such. That, that label is being used to, in, to imply that these are uneducated people that are simply against the procedure. The opposite is true. You know, the people who are questioning vaccines are the ones that have investigated the science. Mm -hmm. And it would be more truthful to say we're ex-vaxxers or non-vaxxers. In my case, I am a non-vaxxer now. Uh, but there are many people that would like to use some vaccines. Yeah. And, and they, you know, so selective vaccination, yeah. choice in vaccination. And, oh, I feel and comfortable with this and this, but not with that. That's exactly right. And, and with so many vaccines in the pipeline, and people should realise that there in, there's already 200 in the process hmm. uh, being developed. Uh, what is their limit for putting them in the body? But you see, by hiding the ingredients of vaccines from doctors and from the public, They've large and, and by only putting in, um, by exaggerating the benefits of vaccines through the media constantly, it's a constant theme. You know, vaccines are great. Vaccines saved the world. Vaccines controlled these diseases, and we need a ninety-five percent uptake rate. Mm. We should but, have one for the Middle East. <laughs> Fix the problems there. Yeah. So, but if you look deeper at that, okay. So, how are they promoting vaccines? It's not not by statistics showing improvements in health. Now, that's what a health policy should be. It should be being promoted on the improvements in health that it's causing. Mm -hmm. The government can't do that mm. because health has gone down significantly. Okay. What the government says is, oh, we must have a 95% uptake rate of all of these vaccines to control the disease. So that implies, that leaves you to assume, oh, a higher vaccination rate means good health, mm. better health. Our children will it's be the healthier. implication of... Implication. It's yeah. simply an assumption. So, so, so they're promoting it on higher vaccination rates and they call it immunisation. Mm. Even that's false. Because many people don't get immunity after a vaccine. Yeah. So the government is act and the media are incorrectly promoting these as immunisation policies. They're not. Yeah. They are vaccination policies. And most of us are getting immunity from natural infection mostly of which is asymptomatic yep. or mild cases which are self-limiting and, and, and give us long-term immunity. What do you say to anyone who's listening to this who, you know, I mean, there's a lot to take on, mm. right? This is quickly gone beyond vaccines. Mm. It's and, political. The issue is political. And it's as just... Much as much scientific. It, and it can be just so bloody confronting for yes, someone because yes, it's all yes. of a sudden like, oh my God, the people out there that are supposed to be looking after me mm. are not. Mm. No, that's right. It's a, it, and that's how, how you, evil it is. How, it's actually an abuse of public trust. And that, yeah. that is what is so scary. And yeah. it's sad. We've reached this point. Um, but people do have to recognise that they do need to do their research, investigate for themselves, but also um, trust your instincts. Mm. Humans have survived through common sense and instincts. That's how we have evolved and survived. And that's what we need now. Mm. You know, common sense needs to come back into the equation. Um, you know, honestly, someone must be laughing with, with this cocktail of chemicals, uh, you know, and, and saying you can inject that safely into humans, in, a, a developing infant, without any consequences. You know, what medical in drug 
can, can have no side effects. There mm. is none. Parents need to start thinking of this as a drug and um, understanding that um, ingredients make a difference to your body, you know, just like they do with food. It's critical with, with vaccines as well. So do their own research and the public will have to fight because we do not have a media. So um, if they, uh, and if we give in now, it's a slippery slope. If you just comply, uh, that's right. The, the flu vaccine was a point in case, a case in point, because with this aged care facilities, I haven't been able to see my neighbour in an aged care facility because on an arbitrary decision, they've suddenly mandated a flu vaccine that isn't proven effective, so, that isn't related to COVID-19 at all. There's no strains that will cover for it. Mm. Uh, that may very well um, make you more susceptible to COVID because it will make suppress a lot of people's immune the, system. Is um, H1N1? Um, it probably has got H1N1 in it. Y yes, yeah, that's a common... Um, strain that they cover yeah mm. and uh, but but there's hundreds of flu strains causing flu mm. and they just pick out the three that they say are the dominant ones um, and in this case it has nothing to do with COVID flu vaccines do cause death and serious illness in a lot of people due to their genetics um, mm. and their predisposition to disease and they can suppress your immune system so you're more susceptible to other flu viruses you know, um, it made no sense whatsoever. And the people that just went and got that flu vaccine so they could see their loved ones, unfortunately, that um, means that the fight to actually prevent more, the COVID-19 vaccine will be here soon. That was the ultimate goal. That was going goal. to be one of my next That's questions. It. It's the ultimate goal. It's the same with the, what happened with COVID the COVID-19? Yeah, there's Mandated? A, that's it, that's it. That's where they're heading. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't bet um, against it, would you? No. <laughs> we, and Unless also, we rise up. That's it. We need the public to actually rise up and say, no, it's our bodies, our choice. Medicaid, and we're healthy people. Because here's, here's the thing, right? And, and, you know, I appreciate all the science and everything that you say, mm -hmm. but here's, here's the basic piece of logic that sits on the top of this, right? Mm -hmm. Which backs up the, backs up, like, the whole freedom to choose but also is respect, respectful to the vaccine theory mm. that if vaccines are all that they are supposed to be cracked out to be, mm. protective, immunisation, da-da-da-da-da, then if you have it and I don't, yeah, yeah. why am I a threat to you? Exactly. You're not. You know, That's exactly right. All I am mm. is a potential burden on, my, on the health system because I might get ill. It's actually the opposite. It's the vaccinated that, that get all the chronic well, illness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. But that's parking, right. that, exactly. parking that aside just that's for right. one minute. That's right. If, if... If they work. If they work. And 90% of the, people have them. And 90% have them, right? <laughs> then the 10%, no, I don't, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Then there's a higher... Then in theory, there's yeah. a possibility I could get ill or poorly, yeah. right? Which means then I become... I am no longer a burden on you. I'm more likely to become a burden on... The healthcare system, right? Because someone's got to actually look after me because I might get ill. Well, that's my choice. I pay my taxes, mm -hmm. and then that's my choice alongside, you know, smoking, drinking, and all the other things which might lead health, you know, lifestyle things, which might then lead me to also draw on the healthcare system, mm -hmm. which I'm entitled to do because I pay my taxes. That's right. So, even, even, even if all of everything you've listened to in this entire podcast <laughs> is too much That's for right. you, right? That's right. Ask yourself this, right? Yeah, yeah. If they are all they're cracked up to be, 
and you decide to have one, why are you worried about whether I, my kids, or my friend and my neighbour's kids have had it or not? That's right. Because Makes no you've, got, sense. you've got the glow around you. You're protected. That's right. you're, protected. you're all good. If they work, you're protected. That's exactly correct. And no parent should be worried about any unvaccinated child yeah. because it's not going to affect your child. So that blows the media out. Yep, yep, yep. That's the biggest myth that you would have to wonder how they succeeded in yeah, actually yeah. Because it, um, people getting people to believe it's, that. It's, it's, it's almost like... Um, it's laughable, completely it, laughable. It's almost, like taking the, it's almost like taking the punch that's coming towards you and pulling it mm. the other direction. Okay, I'll go with you, but this is where it's heading. <laughs> that's right. It's, this it is, is where laughable, it's yeah. Um, but I, can I just add yeah. on to that? Um, because, you know, the science, you know, it's on top of that. The science should speak for itself. You know, so, so educated people are going to have the vaccines if, if it's showing that they're effective. Yeah. So, so, you know, when educated people are, are, are choosing either to be selective or to not vaccinate, you know, um, that's another wake up call to people. Um, but this, and, and when the media starts censoring this information, hmm. people should be waking up. You know, why, if this, you know, the science should speak for itself and if they're having to censor it, then it's not standing up to scrutiny. Clearly. Yeah. 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 Mm. So I've got a couple more questions left for you. Um, if I am watching this or I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh, gosh, my kids have had quite a lot of vaccines, mm -hmm. which means that they've had quite a lot of junk pumped into mm -hmm. them. Do you know of things out there that we can look at to start cleaning ourselves out yes. from the damage? Because you're talking about like earlier on, mass uh, like big cumulative. exposure cumulative yes, that's the word levels, yeah yes. cumulative exposure to aluminium and yeah, stuff like that right. and possibly other heavy and metals mercury actually mercury in the well. flu vaccine the multi multi-dose vials of flu vaccine yeah so that's a lot of heavy metals in there that's right are there things that we can be doing to clean ourselves out if we've come to this epiphany our found mm. and our family have already been this far into the the multi-vaccination journey are there things that we can do yeah well firstly i'd like to just let people know that, I mean, your quality of life depends upon the decision you make with vaccines. Yeah. There will be many parents out there today who are full-time carers for their children yeah. because of this vaccine schedule. Yeah. The genetics and the, the number of genetic diseases over 500 that people can be predisposed to. Um, so it is a very important decision that they're making, that parents are making. They mm -hmm. need to investigate for themselves um, the science. Just... You know, you don't need a PhD. That's what I literally, yeah. I, I re resented actually having to do it, I might say. Yeah. You know, common sense is enough. Investigate the ingredients. Know that, you know, an unvaccinated child isn't a risk to society. Um, and in fact, because the, the, the diseases, the deaths from these diseases were reduced prior to all the vaccines being introduced. Mm, as we know, said earlier on. Yeah, that in itself, you don't have to be fearful of infectious diseases. Um, it's the media that's creating that fear. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of um, being confident and being strong with the decision you make, I mean, it, it just comes back to those logical things that we just said then, mm. you know, um, knowing what the ingredients are, knowing what controlled infectious diseases, knowing the vested interests that are in this policy and how the political system works. Money is power. That, that's a key thing to remember because it's the scientific network with the most money 
And of course, pharmaceutical companies, this is now a, a billion dollar, $50 billion industry with these, these vaccines are very successful. They call mm. them, the HPV vaccine was called the golden egg of vaccines. You know, it's literally one of the most fraudulent on the market because it hasn't proved to prevent any cervical cancer. They, again, they used a surrogate. So I, I won't go into the, into the science there, but, um, and also cervical cancer wasn't a risk in developed countries when this was brought in. What, what happens here is that they give scientists awards such as Australian of the Year. So to sell the HPV vaccine in 2007, they awarded Professor Ian Fraser, one of the developers of this vaccine, who's Australian, mm -hmm. Australian of the Year award in January. And then it literally it was a, the pharmaceutical companies designed the marketing um, program for doctors to present. They designed all the slides. I've had this research published in journals, in an infectious agents and cancer journal. And so it was a pharmaceutically designed promotion campaign. There was no, the risk of cervical cancer to women in 2007, 1.7 per 100,000 women was the death rate. And that's very low, it's extremely low. It wasn't a, one of the cancers that we were even talking about. Mm. But if you give the Australian of the year, to the maker of the vaccine, and then you push, doctors are pushing this vaccine through a, promote, a campaign that's promoted by the pharmaceutical companies. Again, you create the market. You create the momentum, create the momentum. you shape the landscape. Hide the injuries, and, and that vaccine had three times as many mm. uh, serious adverse events than any other vaccine on the market. What's the and death it had, rate now? It had doubled the aluminium as well, and now they've tripled that. The death rate to, I, I'm not, I don't know off the top okay. of my head recently, but there is a, um, if people want information on the HPV vaccine, there's a global website called SaneVax. So it was safe and effective and for affordable vaccines, abbreviated to sane.vax.org. And um, that is global and it has presented all the deaths, paralysis, serious injuries globally from the different countries and the campaigns that they've had. Japan even put, they, they had a moratorium on the HPV vaccine in 2014. Mm. You know, and, and our government has just simply ignored all the serious side effects and said that they don't happen. And now they don't even acknowledge a lot of them. Mm. Yeah, so. Um, Tell me about what you've learned about your self through this journey <laughs> well i guess because it is it's not an easy thing to do and you started off as a science teacher yes <laughs> now look at you in and the middle of a stall that's right um because you lose your reputation in one sense but also there's a lot of people recognizing what's going on and they're writing to me all the time and that's what keeps me strong mm. You've also got to think of what sort of a world you're going to leave your children. Mm. And if, if you don't, as I said, if you don't have your body, there's no freedom. Mm. So that's what kept me going. Have you had to dig deep during it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, the attack on your reputation and the Wikipedia entries. And of course, the media is quite... Um, uh, um, that the, the bullying and intimidation through the media means that even your friends who have scientific back, backgrounds or whatever, um, <clears throat> if their job depends upon believing, which of course people are targeted in their jobs, they know that if they question vaccines that they will be sidelined from their positions. 
so it, it, it's actually not straightforward as to um, who, and if people won't read your stuff, if they just believe the spin, and most people won't, who's going to read a PhD? That's yeah. what even academics have said to me, I'm not going to read your PhD, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, no, they bloody are. <laughs> that's right. So they prefer to listen to the spin that comes through the mainstream media or Wikipedia. And, and therefore, you know, they, they feel justified in their decisions. And of yeah. course, that's, it they, they then does put a bit of a barrier between even some of your close friends. So that has been hard to tackle. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> but um, the, the public's gradually waking up and, um, you know, I stand tall because, you know, I've put the science out there for scrutiny and the public officials such as Peter McIntyre, who's headed our vaccination program in Australia for 22 years. He won't um, publish his PhD that he did in 1994 of the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine. He won't put that up on the University of Sydney website. It's available through document delivery for students, but it's not there for public scrutiny of the community like mine has been. Because. Which, and mine was, good point, okay. He was the one that wouldn't come to the debate, the Q&A in 2015, to defend the government's policy. And I will point out to everybody listening that um, in 2018, he um, was involved in leaking my expert witness report for a court case involving a parent who didn't want to vaccinate her four children. And the court case was due to be heard in December. He was drafted into the case in September of 2018, and at the same time, my expert witness report for that court case was leaked to the Sydney Morning Herald. And Peter McIntyre, um, the head of Australia's program for 20 years, was quoted providing false information about me and my qualifications. And they quoted directly from this affidavit out of context, calling me an anti-vaxxer. Now, leaking an affidavit for an expert witness report is a criminal offence. And I was required to advise to report that to the Australian Federal Police, which I did. And I didn't, that was in January 2019, and there was no response. They did not respond. So I've got the documentation. I've got Peter McIntyre's submitted affidavit for that now court case. Now into the legal system. Well, that's it. That's it. Uh, there's a lot of corruption happening here and the public's voice, there's many ways in which the public's voice has been removed from policy decisions on vaccines. And this very idea that it's a medical issue. It's not, it's a public health issue. And, and what they did was, it's the public health being, it was called social medicine at one point because it was an issue that was controlled through, as I mentioned, the political and economic decisions mm. and nutrition and other you know, non-medical interventions. Mm. But in the 90s, when they knew they wanted to control that knowledge, it was merged under the umbrella of medical um, advice. Um, under vaccinology, you know, so vaccines, of course, are a medical intervention, but they're one for healthy people. And, and pe mm. your parents need to recognise that we're born with a fully functioning child with, with an immune system and digestive system this, that needs to develop without interference. Yeah, I mean, this thing yes. is, is incredible. Self-contained. It's incredible. We weren't the born stuff it to does, have drugs. Yeah, the stuff it does is mm. incredible. And I find that whether it's vaccine or, oh, stay at home because the mm. nasty coronavirus is going to come and get you well, or it. stuff like that. Mm. Every time it's like, 
you know, this external thing can come in and compromise you in here. Mm. Now, this thing is incredible. Mm. The more I, you know, I, I'm 45. We're born, but we're only born with an immune system, system. that d fights off these diseases. And, and does all sorts mm. of things. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it strikes me that the biggest threat to this is, is, is fear and concern it and is. worry and stress and anxiety. And drugs. And and drugs. Any drug that you put in your body is going to have a side effect. We know even Panadol. Uh, and so that, that, that's another, you know, um, evil thing really to, mm. to have classified it as a biologic instead of a drug. Again, that sort of takes away its mm. the connotation, doesn't mm. it? And that's how this has all worked. You know, vaccine preventable diseases. That's a label. But as I said, they haven't proved that the vaccines prevent disease with those definitive statistics of, is it the vaccinated or the unvaccinated children that are getting the diseases? It mm. could be easily proven, but they, they brought in that label. So after they moved public health under the medical umbrella, they then started calling infectious diseases vaccine preventable diseases. So, you know, again, that goes with the indoctrination through the education system. Disease. And you call it an immunisation policy instead of a vaccination policy. Two different words. Yeah. Vaccines, you may not get immunity after you have a vaccine, but they've called it an immunisation policy, implying that you always get immunity. You see what, and the lay, so the labels. It's so subtle. It is so you know, subtle. An immunisation policy would be include mm. nutrition and mental well-being. Yes, and yes, stuff yes. Like Making that. sure your system functions yeah. to a peak. To a peak, yeah. to the peak that it should yeah. do. And you see, if you don't get that natural priming of um, with infectious disease exposure when you're young, then the immune system doesn't get that long-term immunity that it needs. Yeah. And they know that infectious diseases such as measles, chicken pox, and those whooping cough, ones that you're meant to get in childhood exposure mm. to, if you get them as an adolescent... You and I will probably have vivid memories of. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, measles parties or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chicken pox parties. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So if you get those diseases as an adolescent or older, they're much more serious, you see. Yes. So it is important that children get exposed to the viruses, particularly over the age of one year. You know, over six months is generally fine. Um, most deaths occur under six months if, if there's a problem. But, it's, it, you know, in a developed country, it's unlikely, you see, so unlikely. And, um, you know, certainly over the age of one year, they're, they're meant to get these diseases, to get that long-term immunity. And that's where herd immunity came from. Mm. So the, the pharmaceutical companies have taken these arguments and applied them to vaccines, you see. And that's really, you know, the evil thing. They've turned everything upside down. Mm. It's the arguments of natural exposure that um, I wonder why they Swed should be applying to. I wonder why Sweden is immune to this. <laughs> that's right. And in fact, in 2014 or 15, they actually said they will not be mandating any vaccine in the population it is against their constitution and they are aware of the serious health mm. risks of vaccines so it was stated in you know around 2014-15 um, the thing is what happens is the governments with the it depends how much the government has been influenced by pharmaceutical lobbying that's what's happening with different governments in different countries mm. so you know whether the um, Swedish government is going to be affected later by pharmaceutical influence, we don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the COVID-19 vaccine, mm. which um, Bill Gates assures us is the end solution. <laughs>
That's, he's actually stated that in a, mm. and we've been told by numerous people and, you know, Prime Minister himself saying, oh, we're not going to um, finish the lockdown or the social distancing until we have a vaccine. You know, there you those, go, right there. There it is. There, there it, it is. is. Right there. And who funds The Guardian regarding global health policy and the ABC and the BBC? Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So you see, even The Guardian's not independent on this, this vaccine issue. And all mainstream media are being influenced by pharmaceutical funding in what they're saying about mm. vaccines. They're selling, promoting vaccines. It's what makes money. Last question I ask all my guests mm. is if you could take a nugget of information and just upload it into the collective consciousness so everyone just gets it, what would it be? Um, with regards to vaccines... It can be anything you want. It's your <laughs> forum, Judy. Well, I mean, you know, this is... I guess human rights is such a big issue. And, and for me, you know, it's, it's our bodies. You know, what we put into them is, is our decision. And um, I think pe people need to understand that, you know, we, if we lose that, that right to choose what we put in our job, in our bodies, there is no freedom in society. Um, that is the fundamental one, even more than clean air and clean water. Um, you know, and by, by accepting mandatory vaccination, you are literally giving your body to the government, as we've said. <laughs> and you know, um, people need to wake up and just start reframing this whole debate and recognising that it's indoctrination. You know, a lot of the nurses and doctors are so indoctrinated as well. And, and, and money comes, you know, there's also the money. They lose mm. money if they look outside the square and they lose their jobs. So I do understand their... Little sheepdog that keeps them in the past. That's it. That's it. Um, yeah, and even with the autism issue, the autism institutes lose their f government funding if there's any suggestion that vaccines um, might, might cause autism. And yet 100% of the children in the autistic centres would be vaccinated. It's been absolutely fascinating, riveting talking to you today. If anybody wants to follow you, find out more, where, where can they find you? Uh, my website, vaccinationdecisions.net. Um, and if they could sign up to my newsletter to find out, to keep in touch with how we're fighting this issue in Australia. Mm. And also um, globally, I, um, my newsletters go globally and I do keep in touch with what's happening in other countries. So um, yes, it's very important that uh, to get a grassroots movement, people need to start um, connecting with people in Australia, finding their own like-minded groups within the States and um, we're helping people get, to get into those groups so they can look after, you know, look after each other's children and um, fight to keep our bodies don't don't comply you know because you feel powerless because we're almost at the critical mass whereby the doctors and nurses will have to start acting with integrity soon as opposed to protecting their jobs because i know many of them want to speak out um but <clears throat> it is a big step but um you know the more people that are um um, are educated and, and have investigated for themselves, then the stronger we become and we can make a, dif make a difference. We can, we can change it. Judy, thank you so much for your time. That's all right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>